0: A podcast one production. Oh, that's a girly one. Big questions. James Mascarlick is an emergency room doctor, an ER doctor, but an ER doctor with a difference. He splits his life between the first world medical systems of Toronto and working in emergency rooms in Southern Africa. He's written a couple of highly celebrated books on the subject, the most recent one of which is called Life on the Ground Floor. I caught up with James when he was in Sydney recently for the Sydney Writers' Festival. Let's have some big questions with Dr. James Maskarlic. James, welcome to The Big Questions. Can I start with your surname? Maskalik? Maskalik. Yeah,
1: yeah. Where's it come from? Um, my fa- My. Grandfather's father came from the Ukraine. My grandfather was born here. Wow! And uh, his older brothers were born in the Ukraine. So where in Ukraine? You know, I think uh, near a place called Bulgavina.
0: Um I visited Lvov twenty odd years ago.
1: Right, a fascinating country. Yeah, I haven't been back. Um, I'd love to go, and I'm just curious, just about whether I would feel a sense of home. Mm. Right? You know, I, and I don't know. I went with a friend of mine. She
0: was visiting her grandfather, and. Yeah, very basically, if, if Ukraine's a, a rectangle, Kiev is right over on the right-hand side mm-hmm. near Russia, Lvov way over to the left. Yeah. And at the time, uh, citizens of Kiev would have voted to rejoin Russia if they could. Mm-hmm. In Lvov, it was illegal to play Russian music in cafes wow. and bars. It's a, a place really divided, fascinating, beautiful part of the world. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your, your your childhood growing up.
1: Yeah, well, um, I grew up as the son of uh, uh, you know a, a newly kind of emigrated, I guess, Ukrainian family. I guess it was my my dad would be second generation. So we grew up in kind of an old style of living where it was a country. I grew up in the country. My grandfather was a trapper and a hunter. Um, My dad did hunting as uh, something he did on the weekends. Mm -hmm. It was a full-time job for my grandfather. So I was exposed to that kind of rural life. Mm -hmm. But on the day I turned 14, I got my learner's license. And the day I turned 16, I got my driver's license. And then I was to the nearest city, right? (laughs) And I, I was on the road. And then I never really looked, never really looked back. But I did have, I have these two, facets to me, the, the you know, the country kid mm-hmm. who who likes the freedom and space. And there's a the person who likes the crush of ideas that happens in big metropolies like mm. Sydney or Toronto or Addis Ababa.
0: The, the other two sides, I think you could say you have to you as well as you're a writer and a doctor. I saw you at the Sydney Writers Festival say that you consider yourself a writer who became a doctor. Writer was more the the first calling. You describe medicine as something you had to learn to like. Hmm. That's fascinating because a lot of people assume medicine is something that gets into someone's bones very deep and is is a lifelong calling. Not for you?
1: No, you know, I I I think I was a writer first because I still have this quality of puzzling over everything and feeling somewhat private in my my in in that endeavor, meaning mm-hmm it's likely that you'll be on the outskirts of a, feeling like you're on the outskirts of a crowd looking in and wondering what it's like, wondering if your experience is the shared experience. Mm -hmm. And the only way you could know is to try to capture some of your sentiment and then try to write it down in words Mm -hmm. and then see if you can put it out in a way that other people will respond to. And if you're able to at least capture it correctly and have that find purchase, Mm -hmm. Uh you know as as a start of a conversation or someone says I, I I share your you know what what you tried to what you tried to capture then at least briefly, you feel included hmm. you feel like you've made sense of the small amount of the world and that was something I had from a kind of a young age, and medicine was just something that grew out of uh, first a uh, a uh, uh, basic science
0: now that you've done them both for a while is there also an interesting uh, comparison between with writing you can take time you can try and seek perfection you can rewrite that sentence 11 12 times you can throw it away if you want you can leave it a couple of days in the ER I presume it's very here and now and a lot of the time near enough will be good enough if it can be done in a certain period of time you can't chase perfection is that a simplistic comparison between the two or is there a you know a comparison there to be made
1: no I think that's that's really uh, wise and and there's a natural reflective quality that happens with the writing process mm. on a moment-by-moment basis. What you're trying to do is, have I made this bit of thought or these these few sentences as clear and effective mm. as possible? And looking at it as a, a key that might unlock a bigger mm. answer to the story, mm. right? Um, and in medicine, it's very present. Centered so that doesn't mean you can't have good shifts and bad shifts, mm-hmm. and I'll notice it in my good moments, I'm really right there with somebody in a way that they need me to be, and there is this a linear exchange in that relationship that moves back and forth between the two of us, and as a writer you don't you don't have that sense of feedback in fact when you when you when you publish a book. It's not even as the same as say you're a visual artist. You have an opening, and you see people experience your art. You don't know hmm. if someone's appreciate you know likes what you wrote, if it found its mark until maybe weeks later, months later.
0: And you also can't pursue the perfect incision mm-hmm. or right. the the perfect <laughs> cut. Erase it. You just got to take it. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: So, you, is it true that
0: your first experience in medicine? Uh, in the developing world or in um, you know, outside of Canada, uh, a trip to South America to impress a girl?
1: Yep, yep, yep. She was older. She was beautiful. And uh, she traveled. And I didn't even, I'd never even met someone. I didn't even know you could speak a different language. You know, mm. I grew up in rural Canada, which I imagine is somewhat like rural Australia. I didn't know that that was a, a a thing to aspire to even until i met her and i wanted to show that i was brave and and so i signed up for what ended up being you know one of those fateful fateful trips where your 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 awareness just opens in a way you know how it is when you first travel you you see how the world would work just fine without you you know, hmm. you land in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and you're like, holy smokes. If I fell under the wheels of the bus, this scene would just keep on moving right along, right?
0: You said you, it's where you described that poverty and sickness are the best of friends.
1: They they, they they love each other so much. There's always, you'll always find them together. You know, you'll find them, you'll find where you look for one, you'll find the other. And that includes mental illness, that includes the, the pathophysiologic basis of disease. Um, and, you know, in terms of, Transforming one, they they go so well together. You transform one, you transform the other. You make a sick person well, and they're able to care for themselves, aren't they? Or you, and I mean, not physically well, emotionally, spiritually, mentally well, and or you change their economic station, and all of a sudden they're able to provide for themselves and the people around them, and 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 raise that level of wellness. In themselves, um, which allows them to interact more with their environment and the bigger problems in the political world and even globally. I think that that's why, for me, you know, I, I find myself making the case again and again that this is not just an ethical imperative. It's not noblesse oblige that we get to help people out because we have enough and they don't have very much, and it's a good thing to do. No, it's a necessary. It's a necessary thing to do if we hope to claim. I think our deepest part of our humanity and solve some of the biggest problems that are on our doorstep today.
0: And another uh, critical thing you do in your life, you were doing for the sake of a, a woman in your life, the book Six Months in Sudan grows out of a blog that
1: you were doing as much as anything for your mum? Yeah, you know, you have an ideal reader, don't you? I think that that's what, what you know, when, you, when you're… when. If, someone asks you what your book is about, the natural thing is to say, or who your book is for, your natural thing is to say, well, it's for everybody. But the truth is when you're more consistent, when you write to a particular audience and a particular person, real or imagined, and in this case, it was my mom. I wanted to know that I was alive. And I think that's what ended up people kind of captured the, because I would be somewhat emotionally authentic, hmm. because I wanted not to know that I was simply surviving, but there was meaning to this experience. And so I think that that's what led to that initial success is not, it wasn't just a description of, oh yeah, I saw four hmm. kids with malaria today, and, they, and I gave them the pills and three lived and one did not, but just how deeply affecting that was. And as time moved on, you could see you, um, the change you could read the
0: change and beautiful and moving writing that becomes so popular, is it? Right, your blog was more popular than the general with Médecins Sans Frontières (MSF). Your blog was more popular than the MSF homepage.
1: Yeah, that's what they told me. You'll take that. Back. Back. Yeah, right.
0: Even before you get this, so I, I visited a, a Dolo Ado, the refugee camp in Ethiopia, once with a radio show, and even before I left, I did as you did you get that proof of life training there's certain stuff you do to cover if you were ever taken hostage so I had to contact a person here and who was they wanted someone close enough that they knew me but not so close that they'd be unable to deal with the situation and you had to say look it's very unlikely but if I get taken this is the question I'd get them to ask you over the phone and this is the answer please and I found that a more a, a weird thing to be doing than in any way scary but Does does anything of what you do before you go and work in a refugee camp or a war torn area, does anything prepare you for the reality?
1: It didn't in this case. You know, when I worked in Dadaab, I was asked to fill out the same proof-of-life forms. And I had the – we were the – I was with MSF at that time. We were the only NGO living in the camps. So because of that, the security level was necessarily high, meaning that I could – only go from my basically my room to the hospital and back. Wasn't allowed to walk. There's no freedom of movement. So, what it did really is give me the felt experience in a way of what it was like to be a refugee. My movement completely restricted. So, it's that deprivation. Yeah. Cognitively, no, because I knew I had the Ace of Spades, I had an exit visa. So, cognitively, no. These men, women, and children who are find themselves on the wrong side of a border, on the wrong side of a war, they must undergo a certain amount of mental duress that I didn't have to deal with because I knew my time was finite. But even knowing that, the, the difficulties that I had, just trying to remember who I was when I was stripped of all of the freedom that I once knew was, was, was um, affecting You know, I couldn't go for a run. I couldn't go for a walk to clear my head or anything like that. There was just the reality of this really harsh existence. So there was, I think the way that I prepared for that was I took into the field um, a mindfulness meditation practice Hmm. before I did that mission. Because I came back from Sudan and it took me about a year before I was kind of back to myself. And so I knew I didn't want to do that again. I knew I wanted to do the work. I, I was inspired to continue the work, but I couldn't go into it with the same, without some thing that allowed me to transform the difficult part of it as it came up, which for me was a meditation practice, which was what I took into the refugee camp. But
0: what inspires you to do the work? Because after your first, you know, posting your first tour of duty, you've done more for those people than 99% of health professionals will ever do. You've, You've paid your debt in that sense, and you know what it's like. What keeps taking you back? And I know that outside of MSF, it's different to within MSF, but to keep exposing yourself to that sort of work and the challenges, what is it that keeps taking you back, James?
1: You know, I think you puzzle, I don't know if you do the same as me, you puzzle over the nature of nature mm-hmm. and, and, and why, you know, I wasn't asked to be here, neither were you, yet we find ourselves here. And we're asked two things, to learn how to love and hang on to the things we cherish most and then to let them go. It's a terrible, not terrible, it's perfect, the the paradox between those two things. But what I've discovered as searching for something uh, uh, that made sense is that I never really get closer to an answer. But what happens when I put myself in situations like we were talking about today, the questions fall away. Mm-hmm. And that's as close as I've got to an answer. Yeah. So when I, today, just before I came here, I was walking through the uh, asylum seeker's office uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in Sydney. And it's on Bedford. And I just saw these. We went up during lunch hour and it was chaos. There's mm-hmm. kids from all over the world playing and screaming and pulling each other's hair mm-hmm. and parents trying to make them sit down and have food. Mm-hmm. And I just felt so at home
0: right <laughs> i felt
1: like oh i could see i could see why this inspires people to work here and i i left that inspired to engage more with that in my own community even in toronto and i don't know exactly if i i have a specific answer to why this is something that people should pay attention to except that for me when i'm working in matters that show a true enunciation of what i believe to be human dignity and and respect and caring to people who otherwise wouldn't have that sentiment leveled at them very often, my questions fall away. Hmm. But even the practicalities
0: of how you do medicine in that part of the world—switching between Toronto and you know Africa—it becomes clear in the book. You know, in, in in Toronto, if someone comes in, you can throw a whole barrage of tests at them and scans and drugs. And in Africa, you're making decisions. If I give this to someone then a couple of days from now someone else will not get it it's a completely not just the limits of the res, you know the resources themselves but even do you have to change your you know guiding philosophy of
1: care in some ways i think that you have to you can't delay those important decisions and i think that when you are you are say in Canada, and you're doing the scans, or you're doing the endoscopy, and you don't even think it's necessary, and you're costing taxpayers money, maybe because you're refusing to have a more difficult conversation with people, you're delaying it, you're passing it on to someone else, you're you're forgetting, to, kicking to, it down the road, you're kicking it down the road a little bit, and so to be up against the challenges that you know the Ethiopians are facing. Uh, allows me to reframe the, my approach, even in places like uh, uh, Toronto. So it's more likely that I'm going to take the time to have a real conversation with someone if I think that there is uh, a possibility to to do that. Um, it probably makes me investigate people a little bit less, not in a in a careless way, but in a in a thoughtful way, and. Maybe helps slow me down a little bit to really interact with patients in, in in my Toronto practice to explain a little bit more about why things are happening and why they're not happening. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. But uh,
0: when, when working overseas, you've you've had colleagues taken hostage. Yeah. Um, you you know or know of people who've who've died doing that work? Did you ever have moments where you genuinely feared for your safety?
1: No. Um, I've been ill a couple times and so I think that's the, you know, in some ways sharing space and risks with people was that, that was a fairly common experience. You, you can get sick from the same things that the people you're treating are, but in terms of anyone wishing me malintent or being uh, aggressive or violent towards me, I've never felt that it was directed at me. And except for those instances in uh, in Dadaab where um, some MSF colleagues got kidnapped, never really felt the dwindling kind of window of humanitarian space that we're seeing a little bit more and more. Yeah. So I, you know, since that happened, I was offered at one time a position with MSF to go to Yemen, which I refused because of the kidnapping situation. So I think that it's probably true that we are enduring a narrowing of that space all over
0: more big questions with Dr James Mascaric very soon in general across the the set of people who have medical skills er what sort what sort of a doctor do you need to be for er to be your thing what are the, what, what uh, across the whole skill set what really comes to the fore in ER that might not be the case in more general surgery or general practice? What's the real defining skill of good ER practitioners?
1: I would say in the three minutes that you have with a person, you make them feel like you have nowhere else to be. So to do that, this is the art of emergency medicine. Okay, I'll, I'll talk to you about the skill in a second, <laughs> but the art of it is meeting someone where they're at such that you can cut to the true nature of what they're coming to you, presenting to the ER for as quickly as possible and make them feel that they can trust you. And that's not easy. So what I mean by that is, of course you want to know if some a kid has a piece of wood in his eye. And you can tell because you, you 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 get the sense. You can diag- you can diagnose it visually. You can see he the way he's holding his eye. You can even maybe spy the little piece of wood in there. But the art of it becomes making that five-year-old trust you enough to hold so very still that you're able to take it out with a tiny needle. Now, that's the art of it. And that's something that you only have minutes to make that type of relationship. Mm. But it is in those minutes that the woman who comes in with a black eye who said that she walked into a door, feels she's able to trust you well enough to say, actually, my partner hit me.
0: That's fascinating because I'll, I'll let you get on to the science in a second, I won't hear that, because I would have naively assumed it was the one area of medicine where you're just making decisions so quickly, you don't bond with patients. I would have, I would, I would have I would, it wouldn't have surprised me if you'd said the real skill is to just not, it's just so quick and so manic, don't form any bond with people and just get it done and move them on. I'm, I'm fascinated. You've you've gone a full one hundred and eighty degrees on what I would have expected. How do we get from the art to the science?
1: Yeah, I think that the two go so well together. But it's the the nature or the the art of knowing the human heart and and what what it it what relationship it has to bringing that person to you know the bed in front of you, and the the, the work of it. The challenge of it, I suppose, the, the the skill of it becomes being constantly interrupted with different varieties of, of conditions and priorities, different priorities, people interrupting you about every 90 seconds, I think the evidence suggests, wow. from the task that you're doing, that you're trying to accomplish, you're getting interrupted about every 90 seconds. But you must not miss... Anything you must have remembered to look at the cardiogram before you discharged that elderly person who fainted, right? And if you think you did, but you're not sure if it was his or someone else's, you—that's when mistakes happen. So the the margin for error is very low, mm. and so you you know you must, at the same time as being able to keep up with the the task based part of it, you mu- you let. People feel cared for, and then you complete the the covenant, the mm-hmm. doctor patient covenant. You mentioned,
0: you know, the best way to not make mistakes and things like that. And I, I don't want to be morbid here, but if you allow me to ask that, you know, if I have a bad day at work, it means I crack a joke at an event and it falls flat, or I finish this podcast and realize later oh, I really should have asked something else. If you make mistakes at work, in worst case scenario, people can die or certainly people's health outcomes can be less than they could have ideally been. You do everything you can to minimize those, but is there a certain part of your character you need that just needs to be able to live with the fact that sometimes things don't work out the way they should have and to an extent you contribute to that?
1: Yeah, to an extent. I think that the experience of making a mistake is – Everyone has it, and I have done it, and I, as others waiting for me in the future. And I think as long as your intention is is as as pure as you can make it, mm. you're biased as 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 little as possible, you can trust that you will recover from it in a healthy way and still mm. go on to do your work. However, it doesn't take away the fact that you really shouldn't miss anything. You know, mm. You're know, you not going to be diagnostically 100%. You're going to call things that aren't a heart attack that were, but you must, your attention to detail must be very, very, very high because your patient's expected of you, which is what makes the environment, that's the stress of the environment. Sure, there's people in pain and someone crying and someone, you know, the police have brought in who's struggling. You know, there's that general assault on your senses that it happens when you enter the ER, but it is that feeling at the end of your shift, like, have I missed anything? That is the the lingering kind of effect. Hmm. And over time, you get used to trying to leave your shift and not uh, um, thinking too much about it. But there are, I think, anyone who's done this kind of work has that moment when you make up, wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like, oh shit, I should have done that scan. Maybe that person had this. So. You go back to the hospital the next morning, and you call them, and um, you know you 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 do. That's that's the job.
0: You describe the ER as a, a truly egalitarian place too, because once you're once you're on that table, it doesn't even cross your mind, age, gender, background, religion, access to money. It's what you you're all equal once you're uh, on the gurney.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that's aspirational, even for me, as as open minded as I. I aspire to be, I intend to be. There are biases. You have to ask. You know, I saw a police officer choking a patient who was violent, being violent in the ER. He didn't need to be choking him. He was doing it because that was a, a, a visible minority and he could get away with it. That person was powerless. So, you know, I think that in the eyes of the law where everyone's supposed to be equal even, I think that there are instances where the hierarchy or the power structure is shows itself. Hmm. So emergency medicine and, and just like, you know, I'm sure law enforcement or something that is supposed to be f- for everyone equally the same has these embedded systems that are tough to see past. So... I think that you know when I see patients in the ER I say sometimes deliberately so you and I are in a relationship it's called the doctor patient relationship and like any relationship it can be flourish and be reach its full potential but I bring something to it and I need something from you and this is what I need from you I need you to be honest I only need two things for you to be honest with me as much as you can be honest because sometimes it's not easy to be honest about the pain you're having your side but just so i know what to work on and the second is i need you to take responsibility for your own health those are the two things that i need i need from you and that what i bring to it is i'm going to work in your best interest with as little bias as possible so my job becomes to work on my bias that means if you're the last patient i'm seeing and i kind of want to go home early i don't want to find anything too wrong with you so i can really get out on time that's my job and i'm going to work as much as i can but that's becomes the the kind of spiritual work, the, the 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 nature of the the work a person can do on him or herself in a place like the ER. So you think it's a place where you go to serve people, but it's also become a place where you can get yourself kind of <laughs> the hard edges can be displayed, mm. and if you're brave enough to work on them in in a uh, with with with. Uh, uh, the, the feedback that you're getting in the, in the emergency room.
0: You hear anecdotes of people sometimes presenting at ER uh, because they've chipped a fingernail or uh, because they've got a, you know, a really bad cough. Uh, d- d- does that happen as often as we hear it does? And is it incredibly frustrating when re- you know, they say sometimes in some of the, the ERs in Australia, that the queues and the waiting times and all that, well, if you've got people out there who have just got the flu if they didn't turn up, things would run massively smoother. Have you encountered that, and is that frustrating?
1: Yeah. If a person is not frustrated, I'm not frustrated. If they're angry at me when I say that that's a paper cut and it's going to be just fine, <laughs> then then I'm not I'm not You've bothered genuinely about dealt with it. paper cuts. Oh, definitely more than on many occasions. I think the best the best one I've heard it wasn't my patient. It was a friend of mine. A person waited for I don't know how long, many hours. Said, I think I farted and I went in. they're just looking for someone to chat to more than anything aren't they I guess
0: (laughs) you do hear the occasional also of the late night patient presenting who's been in a certain amorous activity
1: late night Tuesday afternoon oh really (laughs) (laughs) is is there a special
0: code speak amongst ER (laughs) doctors for if you've dealt with a
1: yeah it's called take a look at this (laughs) x-ray (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, one thing that fascinates you, and, and, and you see this possibly as an answer to trying alleviate this imbalance between the, the, the healthcare that people have provided um, around the world in different situations, open medicine. Tell, tell us more for the listener who doesn't understand the concept. What is open medicine and why is it so attracted to you, James?
1: Yeah, it was... Uh... An open access publishing vehicle for science to reach as many people as possible. The idea being that the occasionally, the covetous nature of academic medicine, which is trying to put information behind paywalls.
0: That's my intellectual property. Thank you very right, much.
1: Right. Or or um, you know, not wanting to share your best ideas because you were expecting academic promotion or some other vested interest stands in the way of science reaching its true potential. So if you take that to even even further notion, you would be having open data sets. So you would you share your data really freely if truthfully the science was about letting the best idea win. But it's not just about that, is it? It's about self-promotion. It's about profit. And so, Open Medicine was uh, an open-access medical journal that we started with some academics in Canada to freely make as high-quality science available to as many people as possible. And um, so, we've since we've since folded, unfortunately. But what was relevant about the endeavor is it changed the conversation for the traditional medical journals such that now they were kind of forced to open up because otherwise people were starting to gravitate towards our platform because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they wanted those certain people really just wanted their ideas out there and you know who's great about that as you well know is people in physics and mm. maybe not ideal but so much more than in in, in medicine anyway so it was a, a really uh, uh, evoked that same open space as the emergency room.
0: I heard you give a speech once where you, you you captured the the absurdity of the the paywall and the financial structures in a a slide that a friend of yours. Had do you remember that can you it about barriers to entry mm-hmm. and you, you said that he he had a, he, he had a there, was, there was a paper online that people could get about barriers right, to right, entry yeah, for the yeah. medical system yeah 3495 yeah, or something just, like that. just just click on this for 3495 <laughs> to get access to my barriers to entry uh, yeah, yeah. article uh, yeah fascinating very it must be frustrating when you finish a, a role in Ethiopia and you come back to Canada how quickly can you readjust or can you really readjust it must be challenging moving between those two worlds.
1: It gets easier. And and I would say um, the adjustment is fairly rapid now. And I don't know if it's because I've changed or meaning that my worldviews expanded very much to include a place as far away as Ethiopia. But the jarring nature of moving between health systems has become easier where I, you know, maybe be with some a patient in the Ethiopian ER who needs dialysis and we can't get it. And so you're say to their family, you know, I'm sorry, this is the end of their lives. Mm. And I move back to Canada and the relief of being able to offer something like that Mm. to somebody so they can know what it's like to live in love with their family longer is just this great gift. And the only thing I'm left with was wanting to share that mm. as widely as possible. Take that, that sense of relief that I have of being able to truly meet the needs of the person in front of me and wanting to allow the uh, Ethiopian doctors and nurses I work with a taste of what that might be like. Mm. And that's the work. That's the direction that we're moving through with with them right now.
0: Two more questions for you. Given the toll this must take on, you know, on on your psyche, your ability to maintain a relationship, the chance to you know, own property, all sorts of things, will you still be doing this when you're sixty?
1: I intend to. You know, it's creeping up, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, the the what you don't want to do, and which I've. I've seen often done is the i mean you what you consider the integrity of the work or the worth of it stands in the way of you actualizing in a way that gives you nourishment, meaning mm-hmm. relationships are what we're made of, and if I only think that my job is to help make a better health system in Ethiopia or meet the needs of those strangers, I can forget that actually my job is to be as full in myself of, of knowing, Mm. you know, uh, kindness and allowing myself to be cared for and, and actualizing my friendships and my relationships with my family, because that can get kind of metered out and you see it. Mm. You see people who only know their, their, their life has lived through their work and I don't really want to become someone like that. Mm. So I think that's a, that's an edge that you need to work with.
0: And my listeners would never forgive me if I didn't ask this in closing. uh, That amazing, it turns out life changing, life shaping uh, trip to Chile when you were younger, actually done to impress an older woman. Mm -hmm. Did you get the girl?
1: I did. Yeah. Lost her. (laughs) Found another. Lost her too. (laughs) Uh, For all the right reasons. So, yeah. Mm
0: Love it to meet you, James. Thank you so much for your time and, and for the amazing work that you've done. Cool. Thank you. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm
1: Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.